Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman. And before I introduce today's episode, I want to announce again that I wrote a book. And it's coming out in January, but you can pre-order it right now. It's called The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans. The Five Principles of Parenting is my first book. I was never planning on writing a book because, frankly, I didn't want to burden anybody with another thing for their to-do list. But then I realized I could write a book that would unburden parents and caregivers because I am sifting through all the noise all the pseudoscience, and just giving you the science of what really matters for raising good humans. And I'm also putting into practice through examples of everything from birth through adolescence. It's a practical guide rooted in science, clearing away the noise. Please pre-order it because this is going to make it important on the bookshelves. It's going to make booksellers buy it and want to sell it. So the pre-order matters a lot. You can pre-order anywhere where you like to get books, but also you can do it on DrAliza.com. Either way, keep those receipts because I'm also going to be offering exclusive content that you can download and read, not just from the book, though I'm going to have early content for that in the fall, but also extra bonus content. So it's going to be awesome. I want to support you as you support me. Go and pre-order that today and don't forget to let me know. You can even DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And now I'm just going to dive right into this episode. This is probably the most popular episode I've ever had. It's basically everything you need to know about discipline from the beginning of discipline all the way through adolescence. I have Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, co-author with Dr. Dan Siegel of The Power of Showing Up, The Yes Brain, The Whole Brain Child, and more. This episode is kind of the blueprint to discipline that everybody's going to want to start this new school year off right. If you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to write a little review, give it a five-star rating, you know, the whole thing. Let's get to this. I'm so excited to offer this to you because it is just filled with practical tools that are going to get you through the most challenging situations. People think, well, do I really discipline the first year? And, and I think we can talk about that. Yeah, because there's, I don't know, is planting seeds the right word or getting into habits in the same way that you're reading from the beginning, even though your baby at four weeks old is probably not, you could probably get away with not reading. Rarely do they even have a philosophy of discipline? They don't even have one. Like, I'm like, how do you guys approach discipline? And then they begin to talk about behaviors and what they do, but they've never really thought about what is it we're trying to do? How do we want to get there? Where are you in terms of, you know, how strict you feel like you want to be or, you know, and, and typically what I see is, and of course, this is a more clinical population, so their kids not doing well. So that's, you know, a self-select example, but it's very common across all the people I talk to that typically one parent tends to be stricter. The other parent tends to be more lenient. And what ends up happening is they begin to discipline and parent in response to the other one. 
So mm-hmm. it's like, because you're so strict and harsh, I'm going to be softer. And then what happens is the child is completely left out of the whole process and they're just disciplining in response to each other. Right. So it's really important from the beginning. We start thinking about our discipline philosophy. Now, before we get into specifics, I have to talk, talk about how really when Dan and I were writing No Drama Discipline, we actually had a colleague of ours who we really respect who said, please don't use the word discipline in the title of your book. So I think people want us to stay away from the word discipline to some degree because people associate the word punishment mm-hmm. with discipline. That's really what people think about when we say discipline. But Dan and I said, no, we're going to reclaim the meaning of the word based on its linguistic origins, and that is to teach and to build skills. And so really the point and purpose of discipline, no matter what you and I talk about today, is really the goal is to raise a child who is self-disciplined so that they handle themselves really well in the world when you're around, when you're not around, all of those things. So the way we can think about that in terms of measuring that is that if you're an effective disciplinarian, by that meaning that you're teaching your child Mm -hmm. how to regulate emotions and how to handle behaviors and how to make good decisions and how to repair when they mess up and all of those things, you actually should be disciplining less and less over time. So as development unfolds and does the good work of discipline without any parental interference, and as parents teach and build skills, then really discipline becomes easier and easier. So this is really what it's all about. Now, if parents, if all of us could just remember that discipline is teaching and that every discipline moment when you want to pull out your hair or you want to yell at your kid, no matter their age, we're always thinking about teaching. What's happening here? What skill do I need? Is my child telling me? Because behavior is communication. And so one of my favorite things to do with parents is to ask them to make a list. And at the top of the list, I ask them to title it discipline problems. And then I ask them to list the three or four things that drive them the most crazy, that they spend the most time on in terms of discipline, that they worry about the most, those kinds of things. And then I ask them to cross out the title of the list. And it's no longer the discipline problems list. It's now skills my child needs to build list. And so we just change the title of it. And the same thing is on there, like handling anger better. Right. Okay, well, that's not a discipline problem. It is a skill your child doesn't yet have. And I love it because it moves us from parents who are really just trying to come up with a consequence or what are we supposed to do to to make things so unpleasant they won't do it again, which really actually doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And let's let's get into that first. Maybe we'll get into that after, but I do want to spend a little bit of time on, we already have research on punishment and whether or not it works. So it helps, but it sometimes is important to talk about because a lot of parents, and it's understandable, feel like I need to make sure that I'm not a pushover and that my child remembers that this is unacceptable and therefore I have to punish them. And so maybe we can go into how that's really operating and what we know from research, that the punishment isn't really how you're teaching anything. Yeah. I think we, I mean, I think that's such an important question because I'm going to talk a lot when we talk about being effective disciplinarians, and of course I mean teachers, what I really want to talk about and what you're going to hear me talk about, no matter what topic comes up around any age today, (laughs) is that really one of the best ways to help our kids learn is to make sure they're in a nervous system and brain state in which they are receptive. So the brain is either in a reactive state where it's not very good at learning, or it's Mm -hmm. in a receptive state where it's ready to learn. Maybe you've even stoked a little curiosity and they're they're ripe and ready to learn. And if discipline is about teaching and learning, we have to make sure our kids are in receptive open states. And one of the best ways to get them there is through connection, affection, calm parenting, like in that moment, the parent being calm, using lots of nurture and lots of empathy. But parents confuse that when I talk about that Mm -hmm. with permissiveness. And so I want to be really, really clear that the research is very clear. I actually did my dissertation on these two dimensions of structure, limit setting, you know, the literature calls it the control dimension. But Mm -hmm. if you've ever tried to force a child to go to the bathroom or fall asleep or eat, you know, you truly don't have control over another human's body. So I like to call it the structure limit setting boundary uh, dimension. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other dimension of of, uh, nurturing, I like to call it emotional responsiveness. And I did a whole dissertation on this. And what I will tell you is that 
parents confuse emotional responsiveness and nurturing and comforting children when they're having a really hard time with permissiveness. And I want to be really clear about that. Kids need boundaries and limits and high expectations from their parents. When we set limits and we hold them and we really hold kids accountable for their behavior, that makes them feel safe. It makes the world feel predictable. And the research bears out that that's actually leads to much better outcomes. So let me just give a really quick example for what I mean by this. So my son, JP, he was about four at the time and he was having a really hard night. It was you know, beyond bedtime kind of thing, meltdown where everything was going to go wrong. So take a couple of deep breaths and set my expectations, which was to say, he's going to have a really hard bedtime. This is not going to be easy. He's going to need you to be calm or it's going to just make things worse. So I do a little self-talk because I know that if my expectations are, I want to just hurry and get him to bed so I can get away. I'm just going to stay really frustrated. So I take a couple of deep breaths, make sure I'm ready to go. He has a massive meltdown about getting into the bathtub. There was one particular Lego guy he wanted, you know, there's all these like rigid, you know, like things that they, you know, he wanted in that moment that I was setting a boundary to not take his brother's stuff. And I was holding that boundary. So he was having a really hard time. We get him in the tub. Then he begins to kind of have a little bit of a good time, but then it's time to get out. And I know it's going to be a battle to get him out too. And so again, I take a breath and I say, Hey, JP, it's time to get out and you can either get out by yourself or I will help you out. And I think I gave him a couple of minutes, like in two minutes, it's going to be time to get out. So then he, he's like, well, it's not even a real bathtub and this isn't even a bath. So you can't even get me out of it. Like he was just really argumentative, <laughs> very clever. So he doesn't want to get out. And so I say to him, it's time to get out now are you going to get out? And he says, I'm not getting out. And so I say, okay, I'm going to help you. And as I lift his body out of the tub, I am saying to him as gently as I can, I'm going to lift you out of the tub now because it's time to get out. So I'm telling him what's happening. And as I'm doing that, he's screaming and yelling. Now I'm still holding the boundary. He's still getting out of the tub, but what I'm doing is I am being emotionally responsive to him. So I want to say yes to his emotions Mm -hmm even if I'm saying no to a behavior. So I'm saying to him, JP, you're so mad that bath time is over. You really wanted to stay in longer, didn't you? Okay, so I'm just acknowledging what his experience is. So I'm using a lot of empathy while I'm holding the boundary. And as I'm pulling him out, he's kicking and screaming. And it's like the worst thing in the world is happening to him that he's having to get out of the bathtub. And I'm wrapping the towel around him and I say, I know it's so hard to get out when you want to stay in. You're just really upset tonight. And I say, eventually, if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you. Mm -hmm. So I'm really giving him permission to share his experience with me. And if instead I say something like, you knew bath time was going to be over. I don't know why you're throwing such a fit. If you keep crying we're not going to have time to read any stories tonight. Okay. So that's the kind of, you heard how easily that came off my yes, tongue, right? Yes. Yes. We, we so, all have that gut. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes. Really, truly, if we're being honest, we're throwing out threats. Okay. Yeah. So, which never once in my history of parenting three children for tw- over 20 years has that kind of a parental response yielded what I wanted in response. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I say, okay, well, if you keep crying, we're not doing stories tonight. They never go, okay, I'm going to not cry now. Like it just doesn't typically work that way because it upsets them more because their little nervous systems go into even higher nervous system arousal. And so it just makes everything worse. So I say yes to the emotions because if I do, it's going to empathy calms us down faster than most things. And so if I can use a lot of empathy, say, I'm here with you while you're falling apart. This is a really important lesson I want his brain to encode Mm -hmm. that at your worst, I'm here with you. I've got you. Even if I'm not going to allow a behavior, I'm still going to be present to you. Right. I'm not scared off by your distress. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, when we say things like, and again, you'll hear how easily it comes off my tongue. (laughs) I don't want to hear it. Yeah. They internalize that. And then we don't hear it when it's more important later, you know, when, when there really are things they need to come to us from. And, and I think anytime we, we respond in a way that feels like, 
like criticism or like we're minimizing. The problem is, and I was just talking to a mom yesterday about her son's really intense anxiety. And I was saying, you know, when we minimize our kids' feelings and we say, you have nothing to worry about. Like, I don't know why you're worrying about that so much. You need to stop worrying so much. Not only does that not help our kid feel any less worry, it actually amplifies the anxiety because the child is like, oh, I still feel as anxious as I did, but I'm alone in it. My mom doesn't get it or she doesn't want to hear it or she can't help me. And so when we minimize our kids' emotions, even if they seem ridiculous to us, you know, my three-year-old's upset because he can't walk up the walls like Spider-Man. And if I'm like, well, that's a dumb thing to be upset about. Nothing we can do about that. He learns that I am not going to be able to tune into his experience. And so he stops sharing his experiences with me. So I think this is such an important key is this emotional responsiveness and empathy is a key factor in discipline. And by the way, it makes it less dramatic and easier for us because when we respond with empathy, our kids calm down faster. So then we can get to the teaching and addressing the behavior kinds of things. So it works better. It's just more effective. And now a break so I can tell you about my sponsor. As a parent, of course, we want to set our kids up for success. I mean, that's why we're all here. So one of the ways to do that is to empower them to learn in ways that are best for them, something that is uniquely suited to their way of learning and growing. So I learned about K-12 powered schools, and they can help your child start reaching their full potential and give you the support you need to help get them there. It's a tuition-free online accredited public school for kindergarten through 12th grade. So it's designed to help your child learn at their own pace, in their own place, with an engaging curriculum that supports individual learning styles. It's different from homeschooling because in homeschooling, you're responsible for teaching them, whereas with K-12-powered schools, it's state-certified teachers that are trained online educators that use hands-on innovative technology to make learning interactive. They even offer social opportunities, extracurricular activities, and in-person events. They have more than 20 years experience helping students. So it's a really interesting and free program if it's right for you. Join the more than 2 million families who've been served by K-12 and empower your student to reach their potential now. Go to k12.com slash humans today to learn more and find a tuition-free K-12 powered school near you. That's the letter K, the number 12.com slash humans, k12.com slash humans. Summertime is the time to make memories with your kids. Whether you're staying home or you're going on travel adventures, KiwiCo invites kids and kids at heart to celebrate this season of discovery through hands-on fun. KiwiCo, if you don't know, delivers monthly science and art projects that turn curiosity into creativity, from creating giant bubbles, which is what we did, to experimenting with ice cream, kids will learn in a seriously fun, hands-on way. I tried the bubble making because it was just a fun thing to do, and even older kids think it's funny. You have to try these projects because It's a science experiment and also just like who doesn't love blowing bubbles, but they have cool subscription lines for kids of all ages, ranging from infants and preschoolers all the way up to teens. And listen, I know that it's hard to keep kids off screen, especially in the summertime. So this is just one easy way where you may have a moment to yourself and you might normally say, I'm just going to let you stay on the screens. And here you have a new option. KiwiCo encourages kids to get outside and explore and keeps them off their screens. Have an awesome summer with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code RGH at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo code RGH. What I'm also hearing you say is we're establishing this relationship so that later when they're teenagers and we want them to share those feelings or thoughts or behaviors that are potentially dangerous, we've set the stage for them to be able to share that they wanted to climb on the walls and be Spider-Man and that's really disappointing. And we haven't just you know shut that down. 
But also the permissive side of this would be if you said to go back to that, just to make it crystal clear, if you said to your four-year-old, okay, you're so sad that you, you and, or disappointed, I can't remember what you said, but yeah. you're so sad that you have to get out of the bath right now. It's making you so angry. Why don't you just stay in the bath for, an, well, I'll tell you what, tomorrow we'll get out earlier, but today right. we'll stay in longer. And that's the thing that where people think that responding to emotions means that you're giving in to the boundaries. You kept your boundaries right. so, so that there is the discipline in there. You're teaching yeah. that in that moment, but you're also teaching I'm here for you through those difficult feelings that you're having. That's and you're right. right. I hear time and again from people, even there are so many books, you know, No Drama Discipline is a perfect example. And your most recent beautiful book, The Power of Showing Up. Yeah. It was so, so amazing. Where sometimes it's still, you know, really important for parents to really read those words and get that there is that difference between permissiveness and what you're talking about. They're not at all. The only thing related is that a permissive parent might also be empathetic. That's right. That's right. And that's really how those two, the two most heavily researched domains of child rearing theory and and child development around discipline have to do with these, they're called orthogonal domains because they say they're independent of each other, but I'm not so sure. But it's really like you can be high on the expectations, boundaries, limit setting, or you can be low on it, or you can be really high on the nurturing, empathy, you know, emotional responsiveness, or you can be really low. If you're if you don't have expectations or boundaries and you're not nurturing or emotionally responsive, that's just flat out neglect. And we know the research says that's not good for kids at all. You can be high on expectations and boundaries and low on emotional responsiveness. And that's what we think of when we talk about authoritarian parenting, command and demand. And that's not typically bearing out great results for kids. If you're low on the control structure limit setting, but high on nurturing, that's the permissive. And that's not so great for kids. What the research shows time and again is that, and this research was started in the 60s, so we have a long history of this, is Diana Bomren's original sort of model back in the 60s, is that when we're high on expectations, boundaries, and limits, and high on emotional responsiveness, that's where the best outcomes come. And now that I have studied the brain and the nervous system and interpersonal neurobiology lens, I understand the why, which is really looking at how when we teach children and we help build skills, they have a better developed prefrontal cortex and they do better in the world. They have better problem solving skills, better emotional regulation skills, better empathy for themselves and others, better insight, all of those things. And the way that that happens is that parents are really thinking about moments where their child is ready to learn. And that when we're emotionally responsive and nurturing, it actually creates receptivity. So the brain is more open to learning. So in a way, empathy and kindness and emotional attunement are some of the best strategies to get kids to be disciplined because not only does it help develop that brain, but it also creates receptive states in the brain that allow them to learn when you're talking about those behaviors. And I can give you lots of examples, but you know, really if we're talking about infants, they don't really start doing boundary pushing or testing limits until they can start moving, right? Or until right, they right. can start controlling their bodies. So, you know, some of the earliest like limit setting things are in the high chair and they throw a piece of food right? And so here's another key thing that we have to talk about, and that is to really tune into the mind behind the behavior. So if we decide that our child is spoiled and testing limits, oh, you're so spoiled, you think you can do whatever you want, or we decide that them throwing the food is that they're a strong-willed child and we Mm -hmm. have to nip this in the bud, or whatever we decide this is, is going to be really important in terms of how we respond to it. So if you think your child is purposefully pushing your buttons and and being oppositional, then your brain says, I have to win this battle. And Mm -hmm. so we, we respond in ways that shut that down. If instead you go, hmm, okay, I just read some child development and I know that my child in the high chair is experimenting with gravity and experimenting with what's happening on mom's face when... I dropped that. And that was really interesting. I was able to control what happened with that piece of food, right? And so if you if you get into the mind behind the behavior and, and the child is really a scientist in that moment, 
then you're going to have a different response. Now, that doesn't mean you let them keep throwing food either, right? So that's where we have the boundary. We say, oh, that's so interesting. Like you're, you're, you want to see what happens when you drop that piece of zucchini on the floor. And, and you can say, oh, okay, well, it looks like you're done eating now and you can take the tray away. So that's where the boundary setting happens. You don't say, okay, fine, you can throw food all day long. Mm-hmm. And you don't decide that your child is a brat who's oppositional and who's just trying to test limits. So we really want to tune into the child's experience. And this starts, like I said, in infancy, when kids start reaching for things, touching things. And if we start giving them commands and and limits that they can't understand or follow, yes, we're going to have pushback during that time. I love the example with the high chair because that really does talk about setting, you know, so now we've talked with our partner or ourselves and or ourselves about our approach, our past, what we think of as discipline, what our ho- we're hoping to teach. I love the list and reframing the list of the problem behaviors to the to the skills that we want to build. Or how did you how did you say it? Yeah, just the skills my child needs skills to learn. my child needs to learn. Yeah. So now they're entering toddlerhood. Yes. And well, I mean they're amazing. I mean they're so amazing. They're magical, really. I have several neighbors who have kids between one and three. And I just, it's almost like I see them coming by and I like run out to the front yard just so I can watch them. It's, I'm sure it's a little creepy, but no, I, I agree. They're just amazing. And, and, you know, they really, we start seeing language explosion during this time and the way they say we're like, they're just incredible. And, and they're incredibly smart already. They already, you know, are so brilliant but they don't have any emotional breaks really. And they have terrible judgment, you know, and this is like, really, we're talking about between one and four, like their body can do things, but they can't regulate their emotions very well. And, or they, they know that their best strategy to calm themselves down is, is to have a parent close. So they may cry or reach for their parent. And that really is pretty profoundly sophisticated that they know that their caregiver's job is to help them you know, regulate and calm states of distress. And so that's what crying and reaching for us is really about is we are their best tools and strategies while their brain is building to be able to do that for themselves. But yes, poor emotional breaks at this point. And so, you know, this is like the phase where, you know, you cut a muffin in half because that's how they always want it. And then they start screaming because they want you to put it back together. You know, mm-hmm. like it's like it's not logical necessarily. And if you try to explain the physics behind why you can't do that, that's not really very helpful either. Um, so here's the thing with toddlers when it comes to discipline: their gas pedal is on. They want to touch everything. They want to do everything, and they don't have the awareness to say, "Gosh, I'm really tired," or "I need a little snack." Like we have to really kind of be that for them. So. What toddlers and early preschoolers are most known for is sort of these this tantrum years. And by the way, you know, there's a huge spurt of right brain growth that's happening between, you know, three and five and between 18 months and 36 months. We have a huge left brain growth spurt where they're trying to figure out, you know, that left growth brain growth spurt helps language come online, but it's also very much about trying to figure out cause and effect. How does the world work? How can I explain things? And so that's why they just want to be into everything. This is an important phase where our child also needs to differentiate themselves. They're really wanting to be their own person. This is where all the no's come from. This is where the, you know, I do it, you know, kinds of things happen. And they really have this developmental push to be a separate person. And some parents don't handle that very well. Some parents don't want that um, quite as much. We're like, don't grow up yet. But this is key because this is what we want. This is ultimately the path to them, you know, I promise at some point you will want them to leave. And um, although it's sad, it's still good. It's right. It's how it should be. So here's the thing is when our children are at their worst, that is when they need us the most. And that often looks like bad behavior, especially in the early years. And, you know, if you go to zero to three.org and you can, you can look at some of the surveys they've done with parents at the age in which we expect kids to be able to do things like share a toy or, calm their emotions down. And and most parents have an unrealistic expectation. They think their kids can do some of those things earlier than they actually can. Mm -hmm. 
And when your child is having a tantrum, now, Eliza, you've heard this before, I'm sure a million times. I remember the, the sort of wisdom was if your child is having a tantrum, you should ignore the tantrum so you don't reinforce bad behavior. I still, to this day, feel like calling some of my older like clients from when I was first in graduate school and apologizing and saying, I think I gave you some misinformation. You know what? That's always a. I know it, I, that some of the, those kinds of things sit with me too in my early clinical years. But it means that the state of what we know is evolving. So that's a good yes. thing, right? right? And you know, most kids are pretty resilient. If their parents ignored their tantrums, I'm sure they're still doing beautifully. So yes, we, and, we, and, we not, right. and there are times. <laughs> I, I will say thank you. <laughs> I do really think about that. There are also times, and I think this would be a good moment to address it, where you have one child acting out, tantruming, and you you want to let them know that you can sit with them through their distress, but you also have a, a baby right. that you have to make sure, sure to protect or something. So right. I, I would love to figure out how to talk about that when you are just operating with one child or now you're like, oh God, I have to figure out this and I've got two kids and one Smart. of them may be doing this even more now that there's a baby. There's, yeah. there, let's say, a crawling baby kind of getting yeah. a little bit more attention than usual. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's going to be really important because that's how it, I mean, people say, yeah, but how do you do that with more than one kid? So we'll definitely get to that. I think when we're thinking about, you know, toddlers and preschoolers throwing tantrums or you say, don't, you know, you can't touch that and then they touch it and they, they basically do exactly what you tell them not to do. Right. Um, which should tell us a lot about what's happening. You know, like they're like, oh, that, that must be really interesting. Mom's giving attention to that. So, you know, they're, they're picking up on all of those mm-hmm. things. But in those moments, we can say, you know, you can't touch that. And if they go back and touch it and say, you can say, it's hard for you not to touch that. So I'm going to put it away so that you can have freedom to play. So you either move the object or if it's not, it's not something you can move then. And by the way, just try and make it easier on yourself. Try and create as much of a yes environment as totally. the child can explore and do those things. So, and, you, and you don't have to worry. I completely agree. I'm always, when people are worried that if they set up too much of that yes environment where they don't have to worry about danger all the time, right. that the child won't learn to not touch certain things. I'm thinking, don't you want to have a cup of coffee and read the newspaper ever? There has to be a moment where you can say, I'm not going to be constantly stopping them from getting hurt. Because That's right. there's and, spots where they're okay and they can explore. And that fear from parents is so much a part of the discipline process of if I don't let them have this kind of experience, or if I don't say no 600 times, or if I don't give them practice, you know, not touching things, they'll never fill in the blank. Yeah. We just really very rarely actually have to worry about those fears in the early years because development unfolds and they, I promise they learn to not touch things they're not supposed to. And if you don't teach them that, I promise their peers and their teachers will. So mm-hmm. that will get learned. We don't have to worry about that. So create as much as you can. But if you're somewhere where you can't move something or, or you can't put it away or you're out in public or whatever, you can just say, it's hard for you to not touch things right here. So we're going to go somewhere else. And you just, that is setting a limit. It is setting a boundary. And then when they're tantruming, Okay, even if you're holding another baby, and we'll talk about that, our job in that moment is to recognize that our child is having a stress response, that there are stress hormones flooding their little body. And when think about times as an adult when you're so upset that you're wailing. It's a really unpleasant state in our nervous systems, okay? So our kids are stressed out. Now, you might think what they're upset about is ridiculous, but it's that upsetting for them. Okay. So this is again, tuning into the mind behind the behavior, but really our job in that moment is to respond as if our child were physically hurt. We think I can think about it as emotional hurt. So if your child had scraped their knee, the way you would respond is, Oh, that hurts. Come here. Let me take a look. And you would, you would nurture same thing for toddlers and preschoolers with the tantrums like, oh, that really was upsetting. You didn't want to go, or you really wanted that toy. And when I didn't buy it for you, that made you really sad. Or you, you know, you didn't want to say goodbye to grandma or whatever it is that they're upset about. You just tune in, you, you reflect back what you think that they're feeling. And you say, I know that's hard. I'm right here with you. You don't have to give in, but you really are just nurture, nurture, nurture. And here's another argument against why that is why we cannot worry about the permissiveness thing. The brain develops what it gets practiced doing. And just like when we lift weights, 
we do reps, those muscles get stronger. The more your child has reps, repetitive events, where they go from falling apart, tantrum, dysregulated, back to being regulated again with your help, the more their brain gets those reps for how to do that for themselves. So this whole idea of self-soothing with babies and toddlers and preschoolers, like we can throw that out, truly. I mean, like really the way we learn to soothe ourselves. And by the way, I don't even know if we should ever use the word self-soothing because it's it's, it's like when I was set, it is. Our brains are social. And as mammals, we are designed biologically to seek connection when we're in distress, when our nervous systems experience threat in some way, and we have a big emotional or physiological response, our nervous system says, go to an attachment figure who will help you survive this. So even when I'm upset, you know, I'm, I often like want to talk to my best friend or my mom or my husband, or even if I'm in my room by myself, all the self-talk that I'm doing is encoded in all my relationships. Like it's, you know, but we, we, we talk a lot about self-soothing for babies and toddlers. And I just, the way that they learn how to do that is through co-regulation and connection. So I, I'm so excited to hear that. And I think it's worth everybody taking a moment, just listening and thinking about the last time you were really, really upset and what you did, because you're right. I, I'm thinking of something right now and I, very much remember because it wasn't that long ago where the moment where I was like, what person am I reaching out to right now? And I called my best friend and I, I, it was great, but I remember that moment because it was again, not that long ago. And I'm a grown woman who can self-regulate, but there, this is a, we're human beings and we co-regulate with our parents and then with other figures in our lives. And maybe it's really helpful for people to pause and think, what's the the place that got me back the last time I was really, really upset. And if you think about how as parents, we are like our child's hero Hmm. and we are the center of their universe. And if you imagine that moment, Aliza, when you were really upset, if your best friend, who's probably as important as she or he is to you, probably not as central as a parent is to a child. So we'll dial down a notch. (laughs) Very much. (laughs) Um, If you were upset and she ignored you, she was in the room with you and she was like, she like turned her body away from you and ignored you in that moment. Mm -hmm. Or if you reached for her and wanted to hug her and she ignored you, or she even started saying, you know, you're, you're being so reactive. Like, why are you so upset about this? You need to calm down. Stop crying. Feeling. Stop crying. Right. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know how that would feel, right? Yeah. And, so, yeah. and our kids are even more vulnerable. So, so how do we do this though when you've got more than one, right? So you've got mm. a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's having a fit about something and you're also holding an infant. So sometimes, you know, obviously for littles, depending on your kid and every kid has different sensory preferences. Some kids really like to be held and rocked. Others just like their back pat and don't like the embrace. I mean, others, you know, you know what your kids respond to better than in some moments over others. But in that moment, you may not be able to be as physically soothing to your child as you typically would be. So if the baby were napping or before the baby were born, you might hold your two-year-old and pick them up and pat their back or rub their little head or, you know, whatever. But if you're holding a diaper bag and a baby and the dog leash, mm-hmm. and this is happening, you have to squat down as best you can and wrap your arms around, or you may just have to use a lot more nonverbal nurturing. Right. right. They just say, oh, sweetie, you're so angry about that. I'm right here with you. Do you want to come stand closer to me? Or... You, you just have to use the tone of voice and your facial expression and, and those kinds of things. And, and so, so your body language isn't turning them away, even if you can't yeah. actually be there. And, exactly. and I think it's important to say that those moments, we don't have to make sure that our kids get back to feeling good. We just have to let them know that in that distress, we're right there with them until they do get back to zero. I don't even know what get back. You know what I mean by get back. Get back to their typical regulated state. And now a break so I can tell you about my sponsor. And now a break so I can tell you about my sponsor. As parents and caregivers and teachers, 
and anybody around kids, we understand how daunting food allergies can be. Mission Mighty Me developed such a cool line of proactive puffs that make it simple to include peanuts and other common food allergies in infant diets, as pediatric guidelines now fully recommend. Mission Mighty Me is an innovative food company on a mission to help end the food allergy epidemic and has created convenient, simple, tasty, science-backed snacks to help empower parents to make it easy for early allergen introduction. I just think that's super cool because I remember that moment of just like, oh, I know I got to do this, but what if my child has an allergy? The learning early about peanut allergy study led by MMM co-founder, Dr. Gideon Lack, found that regularly feeding peanut-containing foods to babies starting as early as four to 11 months of age until age five reduced their likelihood of developing a peanut allergy by more than 80%. There are no artificial ingredients, there are no natural flavors, and there's no added sugar. They're just a yummy, quick-dissolve puff that melts in little mouths. Mission Mighty Me Puffs are a safe and delicious way to follow feeding recommendations for introducing common food allergens to babies and toddlers and keeping them in the diet regularly. Visit missionmightyme.com to learn more and use the code HUMANS for 20% off your first order. That's Mission Mighty Me and use the code H-U-M-A-N-S at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about this for a second. So let's say you're, you know, at bedtime. So now we can even jump up to the to the next age. And by the way, just one other thing about when you've got multiple kids and everyone's falling apart. Look, sometimes the best you can do is just get survive the moment. Yeah. You Thank do. you and for saying that. Melting down, you you know, you you can do better. But yeah. you know, there were times with my three boys, I'd be like, "You're mad. You're mad. You're mad. <laughs> I'm mad." And we're all mad, and we're all trapped in this car together. So we're gonna just listen to music really loudly for a few minutes while we all take some deep breaths. Right. And then it would give me a minute to like pause before I started yelling at everybody. <laughs> and if you can actually sing, it actually helps release some of that nervous system <laughs> arousal that comes with anger, frustration. So, and then if you can start making up silly lyrics with body parts, then, you know, usually that gets everybody in a good state. So right. you can't can sing and not breathe. You can't hold your breath exactly. and sing. Exactly. So, so now let's say it's, you're working with like a, a, a young school aged child. So we're talking, uh-huh. you know, like five to 10 kind of thing. And, and you're, you're reading bedtime stories and they're not, you know, they keep begging for one more book or they keep getting up and getting stuff. And you're like, I really need you to stay in bed or, you know, whatever's happening in the moment, or you say no more stories. That's, you know, they're like three more and you're like, okay, three more. And then they're like three more. And you're like, no, no more. I said three was my hard stop, you know, whatever, whatever you negotiate in those moments, you know, those moments. And then moments where you have to set boundaries and kids are really upset. Okay. Here's another example. So, you know, when your kids are different ages, sometimes you have different rules and different boundaries for different ages, right? So the older kid has some friends over and you let them stay up a little bit later. Okay. But the little one wants to stay up later too. Okay. So yes. this is, yes, this is like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and so again, I'm telling all my JP stories because he's my youngest. So it's like more closely connected to my memory. So JP wanted to stay up later with his older brother, Luke, and his friends who were over. So I let him stay up an extra 20 minutes. I was like, sure, you can stay up an extra 20 minutes, which really just means the battle starts 20 minutes later when he's Mm. more tired. That's really what that means, right? So 20 minutes later, I say, okay, it's time. You've had your extra time. It's time to go up. And he has the meltdown then, right? And he's like six or seven or eight, something like that. And so my instinct is to say, look, I gave you an extra 20 minutes. And if this is what you're going to do, (laughs) <laughs> then there's no more like extra anything ever. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm like I make these like global threats, which yes. no one, I don't even know what they mean. Like, <laughs> we're so ridiculous. We're so ridiculous. The kinds of things we say as parents, you know, even like that, how many times do I have to tell you? I always want to coach a six-year-old to say, well, according to neuroplasticity and developmental timing, it'll probably be about 60 days and like 38 reps. You know, like I just want to coach them on helping parents like be not dumb <laughs> or like you can't talk to me like that, which is really dumb because they just did. They just did. They can't. Right. They right. Can't. And by the way, the better response is, oh, I can tell you're really upset with me. I will listen. 
And then you listen, you co-regulate, bring in the empathy. Yeah, I can see that that upset you. That hurt your feelings when I said that. Then when they're back receptive, because you've calmed them down, then you address the behavior and you say, when you talk to me like that, that really hurt my feelings. And it's okay to be mad, but it's not okay to be disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And so you address the behavior then. We're holding them accountable Still then asking them, how can you make things right? What do you think you need to do with me right now in this relationship? Because they're not ready to hit empathy and apologize when they're mad still. You have to Which wait. goes back to your yes brain of just wait, wait exactly. till they're receptive. You're not going to not teach the lesson. You're exactly. just waiting until they actually hear the lesson. That's right. And then you can talk about, okay, next time you're really mad and you have big feelings and you want to express those feelings, how can you do that in a way that's not so mean, that's not so disrespectful? Why don't we try that again? Let's practice what that would sound like, right? And so you still address the behavior and build skills always. Okay, so JP's mad. He wants to stay up later with the big boys. And he's just really upset. So I'm I'm trying to like read the story and he's kicking and flailing so much and flopping his arm into the book and like almost hits me and the emotions are big and I'm pissed Mm -hmm. because I already let him stay up 20 minutes and I just want him to go to sleep because I want to get to the stuff I need to get to. And I, you know, I'm tired too and blah, blah, blah. And I still have these other kids. Then when are they going to leave? And that one parent won't text me back. And what does she think I'm supposed to do with her kid all night? You know, like all that's happening. Not to mention, you know, the dog probably just threw up and, you know, it's just chaotic. So uh, be gentle with ourselves. Yes, there's a lot of chaos happening. But if I remember in that moment, Aliza, that my job is not to, I don't have to give in. And my job is not to fix anything. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is be present in that moment and really show up for him in that moment and be present with him so that, number one, he calms down. Number two, his brain gets practice going from chaos back to regulated. Mm -hmm. Number three, he learns mom can tolerate my big emotions, so I can share anything with her. And number four, and most importantly, he sits in these negative emotions. So as he's lying there, I say, you're really disappointed because you feel left out. Is that right? So I'm giving him some emotional language to go with what I think is happening. He starts sobbing bigger and I'm like, oh, great. I just like made things worse. But I give him the language. You're so disappointed. You're feeling left out, right? The little guy. This is a big deal. This is an ongoing theme for him. And he says, yes. And he cries harder. And I say, I know it hurts sometimes to feel disappointed and to feel left out. That's really hard. And I just pull him close to me. And you're, I mean, like you're seeing, you and I are looking at each other. People can't see us, but I'm, you can see emotion on my face. But I pull him close to me and I just say, I know that's really hard, isn't it, buddy? I'm right here with you. And then he's okay and he knows he's okay. So he gets a rep mm-hmm. saying, I can handle disappointment. Right. I can handle hard, big emotions. Like he learns that about himself. And so that's really the essence of resilience. The way kids become resilient Mm -hmm. is by practicing dealing with big, hard emotions with enough support. So when our kids, yeah, that's key. If they have big emotions and it's overwhelming to them and they don't have support, that is actually anti-resilience building. Mm -hmm. That actually makes them more fragile. So the key is we show up in that moment. You know, in the power of showing up, Dan and I talked about The key to really helping kids, you know, based on 50 years of cross-cultural research that shows that one of the most important things that a kid can experience in in terms of their outcomes is secure attachment with at least one person. And just to be clear, that is not the same thing as attachment parenting. Thank you. Yes. That's a whole other conversation and it's so different. (laughs) Super different. This is like, we could study this in, in monkeys, right? Who are not doing, you know, I mean, obviously some of their stuff looks like attachment parenting too, but a whole other subject. But Really, what we talk about in terms of how do we give our kids secure attachment, besides doing our own reflective work, which Mm -hmm. is a key key issue, in the moments with our kids is we help them with the four S's. We help them feel safe, seen, soothed, and then when they have enough, not perfect, but repeated experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, they get that fourth S of secure, which isn't really like I feel secure about myself, although that is an outcome. It's rather that their brain has wired to know, to make a prediction, to be wired to be assured that if they have a need, 
someone will see it and show up for them. Mm -hmm. And what's great about that is we know that it, it leads to more integration in the brain, which then allows them to be able to show up for themselves, to keep themselves safe, to see and understand themselves, to soothe themselves, and to expect other people in their other relationships to do those things too. So this is key. And, you know, discipline moments are hard. You know, when, when we're talking about teenagers, you know, they are, they like to take risks. And I'm actually a huge fan of the book Wildhood, Barbara Natterson Horowitz and, and Bauer, Catherine Bowers. So adolescent animals in the wild will take these risks. And it seems dumb to us. We're like, why are they doing that? Like you almost just got eaten. <laughs> but when they take those risks, they actually learn how to, they learn more about the risks. And so it actually helps them. Those that survive those risks actually learn to keep themselves safer. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about discipline in teenagers, that's again, a whole other talk, but I will just say this, that if we focus on still having those high expectations, limits, and boundaries, and as kids get older, I think very much, I mean, really even starting at three or four, we should have right. them participate. Yeah, there's more buy-in and it's clearer to them and all of that. And we have those boundaries, but we also are very much emotionally responsive to them. And so when we set a boundary and we say, no, you can't go see that movie, even though all your other friends are, I'm not comfortable with you seeing that movie yet. These are like tweens and they're really mad at you. You can say, yeah, I know. I remember being mad about at my parents for things like that too, but it's my job to keep you safe. And and so I'm comfortable with my decision and it's totally okay if you're mad at me, you know? Right. Um, There's this silly book from that, that I remember somebody gave us, Pinkalicious. All due respect to the author. But there is a line in Pinkalicious that's you get what you get and you don't get upset. And I was always like, well, no, you get what you get and you might get upset, but you're still going to get what you get. Yeah, <laughs> that that's exactly me. right. That's exactly right. And you know, I grew up in a family where anger was not safe. And mm -hmm. so even as an adult, you know, and I was, I got married at 22 and I remember I was probably, wow. we've been married. Like, I know we've been, so I've been married 26 years. I'm 48. Cause I know you're trying to do the math right now. I'm just going to help you. Thank um, you. <laughs> that, um, that my husband, you know, we had been married for a number of years. And I remember one time I was unloading the groceries and I was like, I'm so mad at you. And he was like, he came over and hugged me, which was not the response I wanted, but he's like, that's so good. You just said you were mad at me. Like, I didn't know how to be angry. I didn't know how to do that. And had I had parents, well, I had one who did, but one who didn't, where anger was like, be quiet and go to your room. If you're going to be upset, you go to your room. I don't want to deal with it, you know? And so I think letting our kids know that feeling anxious or fearful or angry or disappointed, those are healthy human emotions. But we often as parents give our kids a lot of, of responses that counter that. We, right. we respond to them in ways where we say, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. You're being a baby about that. Or so I don't want you to feel it. it. Right. I don't want you to feel it. Like right. we, like so either, even well-meaning. Exactly. So I think, you know, and when we talk about, you know, mental health crisis that we're in right now in terms of rates of anxiety and depression. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, there's so many things to talk about that. That's a whole other conversation. Let's do too, that too. <laughs> we should. Oh my gosh. I would love to hear what you think about it too. But I think a big piece of that is this generation of parents to a large degree has not been able to tolerate their children's negative emotions. So what they communicate to their kids is either don't feel, or I don't want to hear it. Or you're, you should be more grateful for all the blah, blah, blah. But really, right. we're criticizing them for, for their feelings. feelings. Right. Exactly. Or, or I don't, it's an emergency. If you feel this way, we have to fix it immediately. Exactly. So to just round out our developmental journey that we've yeah, been That was a really, you, you really got from infancy to adolescence <laughs> in an hour. That's pretty um, I'm, I'm sort of limping through it here. But, but when we get to adolescence, and now I have three of them right now as we speak, you know, there are times that, you know, I just throw up my hands in the air and I'm like, I thought I had taught you this. You know, I thought you, I thought you would have better judgment than this. And then I'm like, okay, their brains are still super, like, they still have a long ways to go. And thank God, you know, like I look at my 20 year old and some of the stuff he does, I'm like, I mean, he's an amazing kid. Amazing, amazing kid. Like one time, and I have permission to share this, but like one time, first semester of college, he he used Dallas Cowboys duct tape to hem a pair of pants 
that he needed last minute because he hadn't planned ahead, like executive function, right? But instead of like putting the pants inside out and laying the duct tape flat, he used those like loops like that you put on the back of a poster. So they were all like bunchy and like uneven and stuff. And I'm like, thank God the prefrontal cortex still has time. Yeah. Like, thank God there's still room for like... Yeah, this is not the end. This, thank God, yeah. But he is an amazing kid. I adore him and he's phenomenal. But okay, so here's what we have to think about. Remembering our whole thing is about teaching and skill building. And now when we're in the adolescent years, we don't have too much time ahead of us before they leave us, right? So in a way, we have to be even more dedicated to this idea of how do we really think about skill building and that behavior is communication. Now, a lot of the behaviors that they do at this age are developmentally programmed in lots of ways, like the risk taking. That is developmentally what we should expect from our adolescents. So what we really, mm-hmm. I know, sigh. But what we really want to do is remember the idea of the brain develops what it gets practiced doing. Give that prefrontal cortex a lot more reps. So when your kid asks, "Can I go to this party?" or "Can I do whatever?" "Can I ride in the car with so and so?" any anything that they're wanting to do, and you have that feeling of discomfort. That's a good thing for you to listen to, but that's, that shouldn't make all the decisions, right? Our feelings shouldn't make our decisions. They're part of our decision-making, but they shouldn't rule everything. Just because you feel afraid doesn't mean you should tell your child no to everything. Right. Um, so in that moment though, I want my kids' prefrontal cortex to get used a lot, particularly related to even this event. So I can say, okay, I bet you can guess what my fears, concerns, and worries are about this. So tell me, what's your plan? to mitigate those risks and to help me feel better. So then my kid has to think about my mind and what I'm thinking. And he has to say, okay, well, her parents are going to be there the whole time. And you can check in with them if you want to, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to drive. We're going to take an Uber, you know, or whatever. And so they can like lay out the steps. And then I can say, okay, there's still one thing that hasn't been addressed or yes, that walking through all of that helps me feel safer. And then when, not if, but when they make decisions that are not safe. In that moment, instead of screaming and yelling and freaking out and responding from your reactivity, you may have to pause and ask that question again. Am I ready to teach? If you're not, you wait. Is my child ready to learn? If not, you wait. Mm. And so then you come back to it. And it's not about, I'm going to let my kids stew and be like, we're going to talk about this tomorrow and let them stew for a day as a punishment. But really you may, you need to make sure you're ready, that you're centered, that you've talked to your co-parent and that you're on the same page, you know, all of those things. So then when, in those moments, you can say, my job is to keep you safe. You did something that made you not safe. So what that tells me is you're not ready for that freedom. And so the reins are coming in a little bit mm-hmm. to keep you accountable to make sure you stay safe. And your child may not like that, but they feel loved. They feel protected. They feel like you've got their back. And it's so much more productive than screaming and yelling from a reactive fear base. Because our kids, especially as teenagers, think we're ridiculous in our fears anyway. Mm -hmm. And it just furthers that narrative, undermining our voice. So it's really important that we're ready for those conversations. If we can just hold our feet to a grounded place that discipline is about teaching, that can shift everything. And I really more and more am convinced that as parents, we do way too much of the heavy mental lifting around discipline and that our kids should be doing more. So whether your kid is five or eight or 12 or 20, To say, even three and four-year-olds can do this a little bit, is to say, I know you know it wasn't okay to hit your brother. I know you know it wasn't okay to not turn in your homework, whatever it is. So, and then you just pause and you can say, so tell me what was going on for you? And you're really listening to your child and they say, oh, I got confused or, you know, I thought it was due the next day. And then you have to decide if that's honest or not. And, you know, you have to think about all of that. But, you know, when, when your kid hits someone or does something or they're disrespectful to you, I know, you know, it's not okay to talk to me like that. So what was happening for you? Mm-hmm. You're forcing them to do some insight, to check in with themselves. Yeah. What was happening? I was really mad. Okay. How did you know you were mad? What did that feel like in your body? What can you do differently next time when you're angry like that? How can you make things right? How can you prevent that from happening again? All of those questions, we call this a reflective dialogue. And even though I'm not big on punishment at all, and actually rarely, rarely do I believe that parent-enforced consequences are very helpful. And I'll say more about that in just a second quickly. But 
when we walk our kids through that, that reflective dialogue, my kids actually hate it. So it is kind of like a punishment. Totally. <laughs> so it's, it's a consequence. They but don't it's like a natural it. like, one. <laughs> it Some is. Way. And I think, I think the purpose of that is to give their prefrontal cortex more exercise. Why am I having to spend so much time thinking through all of that and saying, here are the six things you have to do to make it up? Have them come up with it. Sometimes they're even a little harder on themselves than we would be. But I think asking them to participate in getting clear on what happened, getting clear on what they can do differently next time, and getting clear on how to make the repair or how to make things right. Those are key in helping them use that prefrontal cortex, be accountable for their behavior, and learn. I think a lot of times when I just throw out a random consequence, like my prefrontal cortex comes up with a narrative to justify whatever instinct of whatever threat just came out, right? So I'm like, well, now you can't, you clearly can't be with people today. So I'm canceling your play date because you clearly can't be with people. But I've just made that up. I just, what came to mind is I'm taking away the play date, right? Mm-hmm. But when that happens, our kids often don't go sit and reflect. Like we're saying, okay, I'm taking away dessert. If you do that one more time, you don't get dessert tonight or whatever it is. Our kids don't sit and think, gosh, you know, I really didn't like that. And so the next time I'm going to regulate my emotions, even though I have an undeveloped brain, like that doesn't really work that way. Instead, they go and reflect not on their behavior, but they reflect on how mean you are to do this to them and how unfair it was because it was their brother's fault in the first place and you love the brother more or whatever it is. (laughs) When we, in the moment, use empathy, then get them to think through all of this stuff where we're really present in the moment. It's relationship building, it's brain building, it's behavior changing. And I actually think it holds them more accountable to behavior because, so like my son hit his brother, I'm like, what happened? I know you must be really angry to do that. And he tells me the story. If in that moment I say, okay, go to your room and I'm canceling your play date. He sits in his room thinking about how horrible his brother and I are. He's not doing any self-reflection. But if instead I say, gosh, you know, yeah, I say, you know, you, you really hurt your brother. And I pause and I wait and I let him sit in that healthy guilt. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about shame. Shame is like you're a horrible, broken person. Like that's bad for kids. But we have a conscience and we have guilt because actually I will just say this. We had to be in tribes with people in order to survive. If we were alone, we were going to get eaten. So we have this thing in, embedded in our nervous systems that is a conscience and guilt. And it's a really unpleasant feeling. And so I really think that one of the reasons that is there is because it helps socialize us to the mores of our group. Mm-hmm. So if you continually violate the mores of your group, you're going to get kicked out and eaten. So it means you're going to die. So when we feel guilt, it feels terrible. So the nervous system is like, don't do that again. That feels horrible. So you got to change that. So I think we interrupt that natural process when we just randomly start throwing consequences. That is a perfect way to help all parents sit with those moments when you feel like I can't let them get away with it, but really give them space to not let themselves get away with it because ultimately we want them to have that inner compass. Exactly. So in this moment, so my son had slapped his brother on the back. And so I was like, what happened? We talked about it after I I first comforted the brother. Then I come to the perpetrator. It's time for the discipline moment. And I say, oh, you must be so mad. What happened? And he was like, so I'm like, he's not ready to learn, not not receptive. So I say, oh, that must've been so hard. That would have made me frustrated too. So I'm just empathy, empathy, empathy. After about a minute of that, he takes a deep breath and I see his body relax. Now that tells me he's moving more toward receptivity. He's moving out of a threat response in his nervous system back into a receptive state. And that's when I say, you really hurt your brother, you know? And, and then that head drops and he's feeling it. And I let him feel the guilt. And I say, I, I can see that you really feel bad about hurting your brother. And then I pause and I let him feel it a little bit longer. And then I say, you know, that feeling you're having right now, I know it doesn't feel very good, but it's such an important feeling. That feeling you have right there will tell you when you're doing something that's not okay. So I really just celebrate what the nervous system is already doing. And that is the most effective disciplinary. And that is going to be way more effective than me taking away the play date. And so I'm really giving him the experience of listening to his own mind, trusting his own mind. And then we're going to talk about how can you make things right with your brother? 
What can you do differently when you're really angry next time? You know, and we, we talk through all of that. So have I taught? Yes. Have I held him accountable for his behavior? Yes. I don't need punishment and consequences because I actually think it will undermine and be counterproductive. I think not always. I mean, certainly, you know, and, and it's all in the way we narrate. If I walk into my kid's room and they're on their phone instead of doing their homework, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to have a big, long, reflective dialogue about that. I'm going to say, gosh, it seems too tempting to have your phone <laughs> yeah. in your room while you're doing your homework. So I'm going to hold on to your phone for you during homework times until you're ready to manage that temptation. Right. Yes, that's a consequence. I'm taking the phone away. But it's really couched in the idea of teaching and skill building. Like, you're not ready for that yet, baby. Yeah. And I can just be like, phone. And when you have enough yeah. other, you don't, you you can't, you don't have to make every single second a teaching moment. Your kid will mess up in the next week in the same exact way and you can do it then. So we don't right. have to be perfect. Right. We're going to have a million chances every week. So a million <laughs> chances. And I, I, I guess I want to say two more things. I know we're running long here, but I want to say one, you can mess up all the time as a parent. And I think the times that we mess up as parents are often in discipline moments. Yeah. We make a threat that is ridiculous, you know, back to laughing at ourselves. Like I remember one time I was like, now you can't swim for the whole rest of the summer. Like that was a completely (laughs) unenforceable threat. You know, it was like ridiculous. Right. And when you do that, by the way, here's the way out of it is you just say, you know what? I've been thinking about what I said earlier and I've changed my mind about it. That's really different from, okay, fine. You can swim. So you are still in control. You are still the authority figure. You can change your mind about things. And I think that shows your kids that, you know, you will listen to them and you're doing your own reflection. And you can also say to your kids, and this is a really good one. This works really well is to say, I'm not changing my mind. You can keep asking me if you want to, you can cry for a little while about it if you need to, but I will not be changing your mind. And then don't hold that boundary because then they won't keep doing it. When you, the next time you say, I'm not changing my mind, you will, the battle will be shorter and shorter. Okay. So here's what I want to say. We can mess up all the time as parents and do ridiculous things or get too mad and yell the research is really clear on this too, that, that those ruptures can actually be really good for the relationship and good for our kids as long as we repair. Right. So we want to model how to do that. But also, even when we become unpredictable and we scream and yell in a moment, we can, again, make them feel like we're predictable and safe if we consistently repair. They're like, oh yeah, my mom got mad and she yelled, but I know she's going to come make things right with me. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.